The following is a rebroadcast of an episode of Talking Radical Radio that was originally broadcast in January of 2019. My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I'll be speaking with Cindy Blackstock. One of the many ways that settler colonialism has always happened is through attacking Indigenous children. Historically in Canada, this happened most visibly through the residential school system. Residential schools are now a thing of the past, and indeed, organizing by survivors of the schools and their communities and allies has done important work to push for justice on that issue, but today's guest argues that the Canadian state continues to actively and knowingly inflict injustice on Indigenous children. The form has changed, but the harm persists. Cindy Blackstock is a member of the Gitsan First Nation, which is located in northern British Columbia. She is a social worker a professor at McGill University in Montreal, and the executive director of the First Nations Child and Family Caring Society of Canada, often just called the Caring Society. For most people, most of the social and health services that we depend on are funded by our provincial government. In First Nations reserve communities, however, social and health services are funded by the federal government. And that funding is consistently much lower than what provinces provide for everyone else, which means that First Nations people have less access to the supports that all of us need. Blackstock had already seen plenty of evidence of the harmful impacts of this disparity during her years working for a provincial child welfare organization, but it was only when she changed jobs that it really hit home. She moved to another child welfare organization right across the street, Except this one was not provincial, but rather was the Child Welfare Organization for the Squamish Nation. In this federally funded organization, she was far less able to access the resources she needed to try to support families and keep them together. In 1998, she and others organized a meeting of First Nations agencies involved in child welfare, and it was out of the process that began in that meeting that the Caring Society was eventually founded. Initially, the organization worked to develop a clearer picture of the pervasive underfunding of public services on reserves, and ended up working with the federal government to document it and to develop a funding formula that would have helped to address it. The government chose not to act on the problem. This led to the 2007 decision by the Caring Society, along with the Assembly of First Nations, to launch a human rights complaint that argued that the underfunding of child welfare services on reserves was racial discrimination against at least 165,000 First Nations children and their families. The Canadian government fought this case in every way that they could. They immediately cut core funding to the Caring Society and all funding not long after. They argued on legal technicalities to have it dismissed, never successfully, but such that the actual hearings were not able to begin until 2013. And they put Blackstock under surveillance, seeking anything they could use to try and derail the case, a move that both the Federal Privacy Commissioner and the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal later condemned. 
In 2016, the tribunal ruled in favor of the complaint and found the unequal funding of child welfare to be racially discriminatory. They also found the government's failure to implement Jordan's principle, which would require that the government prioritize providing access to public services to First Nations children over jurisdictional wrangling, was also discriminatory. And even so, the federal government has delayed and objected and refused to act every step of the way. The Caring Society has had to return multiple times to the tribunal to get detailed compliance orders to get the government to actually implement the requirements of the original ruling. Though this has slowly resulted in improvements, they have had to return to the tribunal yet again in early 2019. As they continue to wage this specific fight, the Caring Society's longer-term vision includes promoting what they call the Spirit Bear Plan, a sort of 21st century Marshall Plan that would commit Canada to a path of rectifying the underfunding of public services on reserves once and for all, and calling on all Canadians to act in seven specific ways to make a difference. I speak with Blackstock about the legacy of residential schools, about the pervasive underfunding of public services on reserves, about the connections between residential schools and the situation today, and about the long fight by the Caring Society for the rights of First Nations children. My name is Cindy Blackstock. I'm a professor at McGill University and the executive director of the First Nations Child and Family Caring Society. I am a member of the Gitsan First Nation, which is located in British Columbia, and I'm a social worker. I remember growing up in northern British Columbia in the 1960s and 1970s. And as a First Nations child, I got all kinds of messages from society that we were different than everybody else. The expectations of me were a lot lower than they were of other kids. I was to grow up and maybe be a drunk on the side of the streets or collect welfare, while other children were able to dream of becoming doctors or nurses or teachers. I couldn't understand that, why my dreams were truncated and why other dreams were allowed to happen. I grew up in the bush in northern British Columbia and in rural communities, but when we would visit the reserve, I would start to see some of what were the consequences of residential schools, but no one was talking about it then because, of course, residential schools were still operating. And so you've seen a lot of trauma on reserve, but I didn't know as a child where that came from. At the same time, I would be watching CBC back in the day, and I remember seeing the pictures of the Civil Rights Movement. And it seemed like everyone in my community really understood that the Black people had done nothing wrong, and that the wrongdoing was on the side of the people wearing the white hoods. And yet, these same people were the ones who thought that First Nations people just grew up to be drunks and weren't contributing anything to society and were never satisfied. It was very confusing to me how Canadians could clearly see discrimination outside of their borders, but actually perpetuated inside of their own country. And fast forwarding is despite all the barriers, I ended up being a social worker, and I saw all around me the overrepresentation of First Nations kids in care. You couldn't miss it. And at first, you know, you start to think, well, what is it that the parents could do differently? But then I realized that the reasons why these kids were coming into care were really more about government inequalities. I came to understand that the federal government was funding all public services on reserve, whereas the provinces and territories funded for everybody else. But they were funding it at a far lesser level. And that was despite the trauma of residential schools, which put these families in an untenable position where they had trauma because of what Canada did to them, and then fewer supports to be able to deal with it. And I thought, something needs to be done about this. At that time, I was in my early 30s, and I was convinced of two things. 
that something needed to be done about this. And the second thing is that I wasn't the person to do it because I didn't know enough. I wasn't smart enough. And what my plan of attack was, I was going to try and do everything I could with the families I was honored to work with. And in the meantime, I was going to wait around for someone to show up who had all of these aptitudes that I didn't think I had. And that worked for a while. It was kind of like putting your finger in the dike. But I started to realize that there weren't a lot of people stepping up. And so, like it or not, I had to step across that place where that poem says, where light leads into darkness and hope there was something solid to stand on or I'd be taught to fly. That's how it started. In the late 1990s, I had worked for about a decade at a provincial child welfare organization and then literally crossed the street. This is in Vancouver literally cross the street to work at the Squamish Nation First Nations Child Welfare Agency. And so I had gone from provincial funding to federal funding just by crossing the road and saw the unbelievable gaps. Like I was complaining off-reserve working for the province about the lack of services for families, but it was so much more severe on reserve. I felt like the federal government was supervising my practice. The basic things that we used to do to keep families together off-reserve were simply not available on reserve. And so that led to me wanting to reach out to people who had more answers and more experience in dealing with this. And a number of us got together in 1998, and we just sent out a thing by fax in those days to see if anybody was interested in talking about this. And over 60 people arrived at the Squamish Nation to talk about it. Then a year later, in 1999, we gathered in Kingsclear First Nation, really the gathering that founded the Caring Society. We operated for several years without any money. But what we came to understand through our networks is that this pervasive underfunding of public services on reserve was absolutely critical and that Canada was aware of the underfunding of child welfare. It was aware of the underfunding of the other services. It often had reports and solutions to do it and wasn't acting on those solutions. So something needed to be done. I came to the Caring Society in 2002, was its founding executive director. And from the time that I was here, I worked with First Nations experts all over the country. And informed by those previous reports that had come before us, we work with Canada to document the inequalities, to even develop a very specific funding formula that would have helped address it, and they didn't do it. So that's what led us with the Assembly of First Nations to file the human rights complaint against the Canadian government in 2007, alleging that this inequitable funding was racially discriminatory against at least 165,000 First Nations kids and their families. So how does the disparity in the funding of public services shape the lives and experiences of First Nations children? Say if your family's going through a very difficult time, and you're finding it hard, a real challenge to parent your kids in a way that you would like to. Off-reserve, although not perfect, there are services available to kind of help you get back on your feet again as a family. And in the vast majority of cases, those services really do help and families are able to stay together. Even though we talk a lot about removals, in my experience, maybe less than 5% of the families are in that category. Everybody else you could help out with linking with community services. On reserve, those are what we would call prevention services. They weren't funded by the federal government. And so what you ended up doing is trying to rely on whatever natural helping supports that families had, but often because of residential schools, they needed more than that. And those services weren't available, but children were still at risk. And so social workers had no choice but to place them into care. And so the end result was that a First Nations child is 12 times more likely to be in child welfare care because of poverty, poor housing, and caregiver substance misuse related to mental health issues than any other child is in a country. 
How do you see the connection between the residential schools of an earlier era and the kinds of inequities that your organization is addressing today? I see it happening in two ways. The first I'm going to speak about more thoroughly because it's not talked about very much. And that is in regards to Canada's behavior during residential schools. There's a great book that I'd recommend to your listeners. It's written by a historian, John Malloy. It's called A National Crime. And what it really does is it sets out the history of residential schools, but not from the perspective of survivors that the TRC did so well. Uh, And that's a reference to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. But from the perspective of the government of Canada, what did it know? When did it know it? And how did it respond? And what is really clear as you read through John's book is that Canada knew about the harms to these kids, had opportunities to prevent it, and consistently failed to do it. I'll give you one of the examples. One of my great heroes is actually a non-Indigenous man named Peter Henderson Bryce. He was the chief medical health officer in Ontario and developed Canada's first health code. But at the age of 51, at 1904, he's hired by Indian Affairs to become their first medical health officer and is deployed by the government to go out and look at the health of the kids in residential schools. And what he finds is these kids are dying at a rate of 25% a year. And if you track the kids over three years, over half of them would be dead. So Bryce comes back to Ottawa and he points out a couple of things to Canada. He said, first of all, of course, this is horrific. But second of all, quote, medical science knows just what to do. He noticed that in the lesser populated city of Ottawa, people were getting three times the amount of health care funding than all First Nations were across Canada. He said, equal that out and implement some practical reforms, like making sure the kids were actually fed properly and weren't exhausted and that there was proper ventilation and sanitation in these buildings. And many of these kids would survive. The cost to Canada back then was ten to $15,000, which might sound like a lot of money, but the Canadian budget was over $100 million even back then. So it was a paltry sum. And Canada's response was, too expensive, we're not going to do it. And children died as a result. Dr. Bryce leaked his findings. It was front page news. The public knew about it. Leading citizens of that time, a guy named Samuel Hume Blake, who was one of the founders of Blake's law firm that continues to exist today, said that in that Canada fails to obviate the preventable causes of death, it brings itself into unpleasant nearness with manslaughter. So all of this happened. People of that period back then knew these deaths were wrong that they were especially wrong if you didn't prevent them and you could have done it. And yet Canada routinely doesn't take the action needed. And that's the consistent pattern we see between residential schools and in the child welfare issue. When I went to the emergency meeting called by Minister Philpott last year, it was kind of surreal being there because the emergency has been going on for decades. And although I'm glad the federal government's kind of turning to it, The problem I see is that consistently by reflex, the federal government likes to take itself off the table of reform instead of saying, what are the ways of thinking and doing that get in the way of us acting on solid recommendations to make improvement in children's lives? That is one of the key themes that links residential schools to today. The second theme is regarding the children themselves. And if you listen to residential school survivors and you listen to children in care, there's a lot of consistent themes, like the trauma being removed from family. For children in care, often multiple placements and dislocations from attachments. The dislocation from culture and language and extended family member and a sense of place in terms of land and connection. 
Those are all very similar themes that bind these generations together in a very tragic way, in a very unnecessary way. What was it like making that decision to file a human rights complaint against the federal government? When we were thinking about what is it that we need to do, we realized that if we were a part of working with Canada again on a second report, that the children would suffer in the meantime. So that raised the question for us, how courageous are we? What sacrifices are we as an organization and as individuals prepared to take in order to address this? That made me think of some advice we were given by an elder when we formed the Caring Society. He said, never fall in love with the Caring Society and never fall in love with your business card. Only fall in love with the children because there may come a day when you have to sacrifice both those things for them. And when the AFN and ourselves filed that case, we were completely cut with our federal core funding within 30 days. And all of our federal funding was cut shortly thereafter. And of course, that was just a signal of the retaliation that was coming from Canada in the years ahead. What were the central legal questions in the case? I thought that they would argue on the facts, right? That we would have an opportunity to put our case before the tribunal saying, this is why we think Canada is discriminating and this is what it needs to do to set this thing right. And Canada would have an opportunity to put its case forward. But what Canada did is they fought this case on legal technicalities. They had two legal technicalities they relied on. The first says that it's unfair to the federal government to compare its level of public services to those provided by the provinces and territories. That's called the comparator argument. They said, we, the federal government, only fund First Nations kids for child welfare. We don't fund other children. So you can't say we're discriminating just because we provide less than what the provinces would provide to non-Indigenous kids. Argument two was, We, the federal government, only fund these services. There's First Nations agencies who are delivering the service. So if there's discrimination going on, it's not our fault as a funder. It's the social workers and the agencies that are discriminating against these kids. That's called the service argument. So Canada brought eight different motions to try and get this case dismissed before it was ever heard. They were all unsuccessful, but it took six years to bring this thing to trial. The other thing that Canada did is they turned to retaliation. This is part of two legal decisions, one by the Privacy Commissioner and another by the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal. They deployed 189 different public officials in justice and the Department of Aboriginal Affairs to monitor my online movements and my personal movements to see if they could find, and this is in their own emails, evidence that the case was filed for vexatious reasons and they can get it dismissed on that ground. That and a bunch of other actions they took against me were found to be retaliatory. I was eventually awarded $20,000 by the tribunal for this, but I donated it all to children's causes because it wasn't about that. It was about having the right as a citizen or an organization to bring a legitimate claim against Canada. So the hearings get underway in 2013. They go until 2014. They were 72 days, over 500 documents, mostly Government of Canada documents. And in January 26, 2016, the tribunal substantiated the complaint, finding Canada's unequal funding of child welfare was racially discriminatory, as well as Canada's failure to implement something called Jordan's Principle. Jordan's principal is named in memory of a little boy named Jordan River Anderson, who was born in Winnipeg's Children's Hospital in 1999. He had to stay in hospital for two years for medical reasons, but just after his second birthday, he would have gone to a family home if he was non-Indigenous, no question about it. 
But because he was First Nations, government of Manitoba said, well, you know, he's a federal responsibility. They should pay for it. And the Fed said, well, we're not sure what department should pay for him, or even if the province might be on the hook for this. So no one wanted to set a precedent of taking up another government's cost. So they decided to leave this little guy in the hospital unnecessarily for over two years while they argued over who should pay. And sadly, Jordan dies in the hospital just at the age of five, never having spent a day in a family home. Jordan's principle is a gift of his family and his community, and it's meant to ensure that no other child is caught in that kind of jurisdictional wrangling over money again. It requires that Canada pay for services for First Nations children when they need them, and then it can recover the money from the province or whoever else after, but the child comes first. And Canada's implementation of that was discriminatory, and they were ordered to immediately stop. They didn't do that, even though Minister Rabel Wilson and Minister Bennett came out and said they welcomed the decision. It would take five non-compliance orders in order to get Canada to begin to implement those orders. So when they issue a very specific order, Canada reacts. Their compliance was not very good at all until 2017 on Jordan's principle. But since then, they've approved over 100,000 services and products for kids. And we still have concerns that there's more out there that they need to do. But that's a lot of kids who've gotten a lot of help. On the child and family service stuff, they did very little until the order was issued in February of last year. And that order, the tribunal said, you have to fund Canada. If a social worker says on the ground, this family needs family therapy or a culturally based healing program, you need to fund that. And it has to be based on the needs of that family and the needs of those children and it has to take full account of their culture and language needs. So that is being done now. One of the limitations for the future is that Canada is saying, okay, you can have prevention services, but if you need buildings to be able to hold those prevention services, we're not paying for that, which doesn't make any sense to me at all, especially given the housing crisis on reserve. You need safe, responsible buildings to provide proper programs to families and to children. And we're actually going back to the tribunal next week to continue litigation on other outstanding items. One of the things that we're concerned about on Jordan's principle is that although the tribunal's order says it applies to all First Nations children on and off reserve, Canada has taken upon itself to create a more narrow definition where it's only allowing Jordan's principle to apply to children who are registered under the Indian Act or eligible to be registered under the Indian Act, which is a racist piece of legislation that the prime minister himself has criticized. But nonetheless, that's the path they're going under. We have come across families, for example, the mom may have status or the grandparents may have status, but the child does not have status, but the child has an urgent need. What do I mean by that? It means life-threatening or something can happen to that child that can't be fixed, that we could, if we put in the right service right now, could be prevented. And Canada is refusing to provide Jordan's principle to those people until we can have a full hearing on the definition of all First Nations children. So the Caring Society takes the position that Canada must provide help for those kids in urgent need, that we shouldn't let kids unnecessarily suffer or indeed die because of some jurisdictional quagmire around the definition of what a First Nations child is. So we're asking for an interim order that they cover all these kids pending a full hearing on what the definition of a First Nations child is. We also have the issues of capital. We have concerns about the level of funding that they give to small agencies. We want to make sure that all First Nations agency staff are covered by equitable salaries, not just social workers and those who supervise them. 
so there's a bunch of outstanding concerns that we still need to address. And I understand that the Caring Society hasn't just been pursuing the legal side of things, but has been really committed to building an engaged public around these questions as well. I think one of the great things that this has been able to facilitate for us is a pathway to public education and engagement. And that's not necessarily built into the Canadian Human Rights Act or process itself. It's something that we decided to do. We felt that if we provided an opportunity for Canadians to watch this and to evaluate the documents and positions of both sides, they would come to the conclusion that this is wrong. A lot of this First Nations justice litigation happens in dark courtrooms away from the public, and they only hear about it when there's a decision. That just seemed to be be a lost opportunity. So we launched something called I Am a Witness, where we have a website that lists all the Government of Canada's documents, all of our documents, and we don't ask people to take a side. We say, just watch and make up your own mind. And over the years, people have not only engaged with it electronically online, they've come to the hearings. And the most heartwarming part for me has been to see how children, Canadian children of all diversities, look at this and they don't normalize this discrimination. They think, wow, you know, why would this kid get less because of who they are than I get in my school? That's not right. And so kids started coming to the hearings beginning in about 2009. We have an annual event now that was spurred by the children called Have a Heart Day, where they actually go to Parliament Hill, over a thousand of them, and they read their letters to the federal government. And that whole thing spurred the Caring Society to realize that as a First Nations organization, sometimes we went out and told the public about the injustices, but we didn't provide free and easy ways that every person, regardless of age or income, could be a part of the change. And so we created this whole thing called Seven Free Ways to Make a Difference in under two minutes. So your listeners can go on to fncaringsociety.com, find these seven free ways. They're all linked to the TRC's calls to action. Beyond being back at the tribunal, what does the Caring Society have planned for 2019? Our big thing is the Spirit Bear Plan. And the Spirit Bear Plan is the only plan that's ever been produced that could eliminate all the inequalities in public services for First Nations kids across basics like water, housing, sewer, education, early childhood programs, health care, and child welfare. And what it is is very simple. Ask the parliamentary budget officer to cost out all these areas of inequality and add up the big ticket. What does it look like when you add up all those shortfalls? And then have the government of Canada work with First Nations to produce something like the Marshall Plan after the Second World War to address all of the inequalities in First Nations services in a time that's sensitive to children's rights. Without a comprehensive plan, these inequalities are going to linger for decades forward and pile up on the hopes and dreams of kids. So we feel the Spirit Bear Plan is essential. The Chiefs and Assembly have unanimously supported it. Canada has not adopted it, even though it knows it has no other plan to be able to address the inequalities. So we're really wanting the public support in promoting the Spirit Bear Plan to ensure that when Canada knows better, it does better. They can write to their member of parliament and to the prime minister and say they support the Spirit Bear Plan. It's available on our website in both French and English, and they can read it. And also, your listeners can go on to the seven free ways to make a difference and help us out there, too. You have been listening to my interview with Cindy Blackstock of the First Nations Child and Family Caring Society of Canada. To learn more about their work, go to fncaringsociety.com. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. 
On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, and other platforms. I'm Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, published by Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. Thank you.